Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we are going to go a little bit off of our usual beaten track. Um, I read a really interesting report recently from the Oakland Institute, uh, and I subscribe to their newsletter, and it is, tells you all things uh, international that are happening in uh, food and agriculture and very much worth uh, a perusal. My guest today is Anurata Mittal, who is the founder and executive director of the Oakland Institute. Uh, she is an internationally renowned expert on development, human rights, and agricultural issues. Uh, recipient of several awards, Anurata has been named the most valuable thinker by The Nation magazine. Ooh, high praise indeed. Her articles and opinion pieces have been published in widely circulated newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Bangkok Post, Houston Chronicle, and The Nation. Anurata has addressed the U.S. Congress, the United Nations, given several hundred keynote addresses, including invitational events from governments and universities, and has been interviewed on CNN, BBC World, CBC, ABC, Al Jazeera, National Public Radio, and The Voice of America. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anurad. I really appreciate your time. And boy, oh boy, was that a, a, an eye-opening report uh, that you guys published uh, just recently. Um, and remember, you were on, we talked about land grabbing. I think that must have been about five or six years ago. And that had a tremendous impact on me. And I subsequently wrote a book about the meat industry. I was um, commissioned, essentially, to write this little book, very short, 40,000 words. Um, and your information about land grabbing actually informed one entire chapter of that book. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> anyway, well, I'm delighted to hear that, and very glad to be back on the show, Katie. Thank you. Uh, so you have recently published a report called "Drying Out African Lands." What are you talking about? Well, since 2007, 2008, Africa has been the primary destination for large-scale agriculture investors. African governments under the sway and pressure of Western countries, uh, so-called development agencies, have facilitated the lease of land for agricultural plantations. So the stated objective of attracting these investments is supposedly economic growth for African countries, food security, and development. 
However, over the last 14 years, this trend has created a wave of land grabs uh, involving widespread human rights abuses and a devastating impact on the livelihoods of rural communities all over Africa. But our new report, Drying Out African Lands, uh, it is reviewing 15 large-scale agriculture projects in 11 African countries, and it details that how beyond the loss of land, the establishment of large-scale agricultural plantations has dramatically impacted uh, access to water for the local communities, mm. becoming a critical factor in the deterioration of their livelihoods and food security. Wow, that is just, yeah, it's just staggering, isn't it? Um, so <clears throat> your report offered 15 case studies of international development, I put that in air quotes, across a swath of these sub-Saharan countries. Um, give an idea of what they illustrate in terms of how it actually plays out on the ground. So they, a company comes in and it says to the government, we want to buy or lease 150,000 hectares and put it into uh, palm oil, uh, but we're going to do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, give an idea of what they offer as an incentive and then what actually happens when they do it. Well, granting access to these huge swaths of land and just for the listeners, a hectare of land is equal to, you know, a football field. So right. when you look at land deals, which include, you know, involve hundreds of thousands of hectares, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of football fields given away right. at very cheap prices. And all of that is justified by governments as being essential to promote economic growth and development. Mm. But the case studies in the report actually reveal that the impact of these projects is just the opposite. So investors want not just land, but they also want reliable access to water yeah. uh, because they're establishing plantations, palm oil, sugarcane, other export, uh, export crops. And some of them will even say that they are as much of water investors as they are land investors. So really? what is really happening, as we detail in the report, is that water rights that small farmers or fisher folk and pastoralists have held for centuries in an informal way, they are being threatened today. So the report details the loss of vital access to water resources. Uh, we have several instances in the report where you find that these so-called agricultural projects lead to the loss of streams and swamps which are diverted or destroyed to actually establish plantations. And these are streams and swamps that the local communities depend on for their livelihoods, for their everyday water needs, uh, as well as loss of their food sources, such as mm. fish. But even more shocking for me is that in this report, we detail that though it might seem kind of counterintuitive, even arid lands on the continent, especially in the Sahel trip, Strip, they're also targeted for water grabs um, if they have irrigation potential. So from Senegal to Ethiopia, pastoralists, agro-pastoralists, they've been severely impacted by large-scale irrigation projects because they dry out land, they reduce available pastures, they prevent flood recession agriculture, and they cut out traditional routes for people and livestock through fencing and canals. So overall, this whole myth of that these large-scale agricultural plantations will uplift African countries, ensure food security, build infrastructure, bring economic growth, provide uh, water for communities, provide jobs. It turns out these are failed promises that are made to the communities. I mean, I, that, it just blew my mind. And, and you didn't even mention, and we're going to talk about it now, actually, um, the amount of pollution 
that is also part and parcel of these so-called development projects. And by that, it's pollution that we're very familiar with here in the United States. Um, it's agricultural runoff. It's pesticides and fertilizers. And that is causing eutrophication of rivers, streams, and ponds. And people are losing, as you said, their livelihoods and their, their access to food so supplies. Um, so, so actually, my next question about that is like, are there any requirements or regulations that are imposed on these countries? Do governments like even make a pass at, at saying, well, you know, okay, you're going to get this cheap land, but uh, you have to guarantee a certain number of wells or a certain level of access to water, um, and the water has to be clean and potable. Um, that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah. Well, uh, if you look at the report, cases from Sierra Leone, Senegal, DRC, they illustrate that even when companies have contractual promises mm -hmm. to supply communities adjacent to their projects with clean water, they yeah. have failed to materialize. So in the best case scenarios where companies have built or rehabilitated boreholes or wells to compensate the loss of pollution of water sources, communities still report the numbers to be too low or water supply to be inadequate, especially in dry season. Furthermore, the lack of proper testing, monitoring of the new wells does not ensure water quality, given they might be relying on a water table that is polluted from the chemicals. But Katie, you mentioned the pollution of water sources. That is something that we found to be so evident across the establishment of these large-scale industrial plantations, yeah. which in the name of development are actually you know, is really about intensive use of chemicals and pesticides in industrial agriculture, yeah. which has resulted in significant pollution in all cases reviewed. The other thing which is very shocking in the lease agreements that we reviewed, companies are not just being allowed to get away with this, but they're often granted unlimited access to water at low or almost no cost. So only a couple countries were specifying water usage fees, but they leave unclear how water usage will be monitored or uh -huh. accounted for. And most agreements, they grant companies the right to use water, construct water catchment stations, build dams, boreholes, canals, with no limit or specifications provided. And uh, few do require projects to respect national regulations or the water supply of the communities, but they you know, kind of fail to detail how these clauses will be enforced. So to put it simply, either there are no regulations and when they are there, they are very limited in scope. And secondly, there's no way to ensure that these regulations are enforced. Yeah, I was going to say, there doesn't appear to be any enforcement uh, whether they have a plan in place or not. It's like either the countries are too poor or too disorganized or whatever. I don't, you know, I mean, you're the international expert on development projects, but I, I you know, the idea that a nation would just, um, you know, simply allow uh, a company to come in and pollute a water source for their population and, and even, and displace a lot of the population and then <laughs> do nothing to enforce any sort of minimal regulation is, is, a testimony to the power of greed in the human nature. That's all I can say about that. Am I right? I mean, that's all it is, right? Oh, totally. I mean, it is this poor oversight and enforcement of these terms has allowed many of the investors to shirk their responsibilities, to break promises without mm -hmm. any penalties. Um, in some cases, like in Ethiopia, locals were promised for instance, irrigated land in resettlement sites. You mentioned they're forcibly evicted from their land. So here are right. promises of irrigation and the resettlement sites where they'll be able to grow crops. But again, none of these promises have materialized. 
Instead, when communities try to protect their livelihoods and environment, uh, they are just ignored. Or even worse, as the report details in cases from Liberia or Democratic Republic of Congo, Sierra Leone, Mali, they are met with arrests and repression. So it is unfortunate that the governments across Africa are continuing to provide, uh, you know, their lands and prioritizing attracting and pleasing investors over protecting communities' right to clean water and a healthy environment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's stunning. It's not... I guess it's not a new story in terms of how especially African nations have been, uh, you know, at the mercy of uh, Western corporate uh, depredation. But it's it's nevertheless a very shocking story. I mean, just the fact that, you know, that a community that rises up in protest or even says, hey, my water is polluted. I can't, you know, drink this. I can't let my livestock drink it. And the local government says, well, shut up. (laughs) <laughs> or shut up or get hurt. I mean, uh, uh. so w- there really is no recourse for local residents in the face of these failures. There's no United Nations or FAO or World Court or, I mean, there's no international body that can help them. Well, with such poor government oversight and enforcement of environmental regulations, uh Basically, corporations are being left to police themselves, mm-hmm. which often leads to, as you described, to disregard of community concerns around the impact projects have on their access to water. The right. other big problem is that all of these projects are being couched in euphemisms like uh, yeah. development, economic growth, good for Africa, partnership food security, food security. Right. So when you have all of that, You have in faraway places communities who are feeling and reeling from the devastating impact of these projects. And the thirst across the continent is increasing, but they are left with no choices but to kind of document and protest and stand up for the communities themselves. So this responsibility is coming on to communities themselves as we detail in the report. Yeah, fascinating. I just want to draw a parallel briefly with what's happening now. My last interview was with a congressman in Iowa who is proposing a bill that would establish a moratorium on concentrated animal feeding operations, um, also known as CAFOs. And Iowa, of course, is home to not only the second largest hog population in the nation, but also an enormous chicken population. So they've got a lot of manure to dispose of. And it is amazing. It's, It's a very similar situation there, believe it or not, as what you detail in this report. I was struck over and over again by the parallels in which uh, community members who attempt to dissent or protest uh, can find themselves intimidated. Um, You know, the town council is basically bought and paid for by these companies. The state legislature, same thing, bought and paid for. I mean, really, you know, really astonishing. And and we're just sitting back here and taking it. I mean... uh, (laughs) It well, say. I think that's an important point you make, Katie. You know, we are talking about large industrial agriculture, which is being promised as the way forward for African right. nations. You know, they are being lured with the promise of development. We need to look at United States and the impact of large-scale industrial chemical-based agriculture. Look at the impact on the topsoil. Look at, as you mentioned, what's happening to our waterways, yeah. uh, what is happening to tr- drinking water. So when you look at that, I think there are lessons for the world to uh, learn from. And the intimidation that you're talking about, again, there's such parallels. So I think instead of looking at what has happened in this country, it is this failed 
model of development which is being exported around the world. And that's what's pretty stunning. Right. It really is. And when I wrote my book about the meat industry, where I included your wonderful information, or really the thought, the, the whatever, um, the land grabbing part of it, um, you know, this, this model that we're exporting around the world in the, in the, promise of cheap, plentiful food is not absolutely not going to last for more than another 20 years. We can't grow enough corn and soy uh, to feed all of the livestock to make sure that every single uh, human being eats meat three times a day, which is essentially what we're being told we need to do. But um, before we before we um, go to a break, I want you to talk for just a second about the impact that these mega farms have on the daily life for women and girls. That was another part that really struck me because women and young female children are generally the people who carry the water. You know, they don't have a well, they're going to a stream, they can't drink the stream that's right next door to their village or their town. So they have to sometimes walk two hours each way to bring five gallons of water back for cleaning, cooking, washing, et cetera. So I, I wanted you to talk about what that means in terms of the economic development of, uh, you know, the female population, the ability to get educated and so forth. Thank you, Katie, for asking this very important question. As you say, loss of access to water impacts women and young women much more because they have to deal with longer trekking times and possibly much more difficult paths which sometimes can put their own personal security at risk when yep. they're fetching water for their daily household tasks. Uh, and sometimes multiple times per day. In the study, we reveal mm -hmm. that the distance to water body sometimes can be as high as 15 kilometers a day and oh can God. take as long as four hours. So on one hand, it is that, so, you know, you would find women and young women having to take on this responsibility, spending much more time, um, you know, fetching water to be able to do their household chores. One of the biggest threats of that is that uh, young women and their access to education is being impacted because this very often you'll find young girls are being told to fetch water for the family instead of going to school and the impact that has long-term on their lives. The other impact that we also detail in the report as seen in Gabon or in DRC is that women are also particularly impacted by the loss of water access since fishing, which is an mm. important source of nutritious food as well as their livelihoods, is mostly practiced by them. Um, and then you find around the oil palm plantation, SAC oil palm plantation in Sierra Leone, the smallholder plots along the swamps are mostly operated by women. And so these constraints on cultivation have uh, further accentuated gender discrimination. So basically, the impact of the fall of women's income on households, that tends to be more immediate on the, on the full household than that of men. So we are not just impacting women and young girls, but we are actually impacting the whole families with these large-scale agricultural projects. Yeah, really, it's shocking. We're going to take a short break now uh, uh, for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Anurata Mittal. Please stay tuned. Are you a business owner? Become an HRN business member for 500 bucks. Heritage Radio Network will shine a light on your work and you will help sustain our mission to expand the way people think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash biz 
to become a business member today. Please, folks. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect, while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th. And again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. So now let's talk about the World Bank, because the World Bank uh, is probably one of the largest institutions that has been most prominent in promoting this type of agricultural development around the world. Um, I'm sure there are other institutions that also actively promote foreign investment in Africa as a means to, quote unquote, food security. But, um, uh, you know, first of all, they're not actually growing food, right? So let's talk about the crops they are growing. Again, a very important question, because when we talk or hear about food security and the need for investment in agriculture in Africa, we tend to think of, you know, all the famines we have heard and read about, and this will help solve the problem. But again, in the cases that we looked at, this large scale investment that is happening is often for export agriculture. This is not about feeding Africa, but very often it is for using the land and water of African countries to produce. Things like palm oil, as you find Indonesia, uh, Malaysia kind of saturated in terms of the need for palm oil. You know, investors are looking at Africa, how to grow palm oil there. Uh, You see sugarcane plantations. You see uh, plants for growing, uh, say, genetically modified corn for ethanol Mm -hmm. purposes. So Mm -hmm. this is not about growing food for Africa. I'll also mention in some of the cases, countries like Zambia have been uh, pressured that when you get a lot of investment, you have to make commitments that you would allow exports of 80% of the food that is produced in your country, even if there's a food shortage. So these are the kind of concessions that the countries are making to lure investors, which clearly demonstrate that this has nothing to do with feeding Africa. Absolutely. So now the World Bank... Uh, they they promote and facilitate this investment, correct? This is what their gig is, if I understand it correctly. And I actually had a very dear friend who worked for the World Bank for 30 years and, and totally believed in everything she was doing. And I'm, I'm just like, at this point, we've all seen, there's plenty of evidence uh, out there, scientifically irrefutable evidence, that demonstrates that the type of intensive agriculture that we practice in this country, be it corn, soy, uh, you know, meat, whatever, is definitely has an impact on climate and definitely has an impact on the future of the soils and the future of the waterways. And yet we continue to promote this same model. So let's talk for a minute about how much money we are we as taxpayers contributing money to the World Bank to f- promote this type of agriculture? I mean, how how is the World Bank funded? I'm just I was just curious about that. 
Well, the World Bank is funded by every country's, you know, it's from the taxpayers. Uh, United mm-hmm. States is one of the largest contributors, as you said. But I think we need to really look at the World Bank and understand that though it has world in it, there's nothing global uh, about <laughs> it. Uh, you know, the right. pres- the head of World Bank always is an American. Or when you look mm-hmm. at the Western aid agencies, I think you have to look at the history and it becomes obvious that this is not really about aiding so-called developing countries. These are really about aiding Western corporations. So in the case of uh, the World Bank, especially around land, so-called investment in land, which is resulting in land grabs, and as we show in this report, also water grabs, there's a lot of so-called support and guidance, which is coming from international institutions, such as the World Bank and other Western agencies, including the USAID, which are promoting large-scale agricultural schemes as a top-down formula for development in these countries, whereas the people who are those who profit here are Western corporations and Western elite. So most African countries, for instance, have set up investment promotion agencies. They might be called by a different name, but if you look at the blueprint, it's identical. And it is one of the instruments which has been established with the guidance and funding of the World Bank. And the intent of that is to market available land, favorable water access, uh, with the intent to attract foreign investors for large-scale agricultural projects. Now, the criteria there is to lure foreign investors and not to have regulations. They would not be encouraging Mm. countries to have land laws, free prior informed consent, regulations around, you know, wise water usage, real payments for that. Uh, taxes actually going into the countries, they would be asking them to allow 100% repatriation of profits. So investors want to go and invest there. And even today, you'll see in the report how many of these investment promotion agencies are advertising tens of millions of hectares of irrigable land and underutilized water resources to investors. So they have become the places to kind of showcase how much land is available which is irrigated is really rich land which is available for almost nothing to these western investors yeah and the other thing that struck me was i you you published a chart uh i don't know exactly from whence the chart emanated but it basically was you know each country uh in africa or in the sub-saharan strip uh it's advertising oh we have you know x number of hectares of irrigable land you know ready access to water whatever um and, uh, you know, I was struck by, like, these projects fail. I mean, a lot of the projects that you delineate in your, in your um, uh, you know, in your initial report in those case studies, many of those companies that went in and, you know, raped the land and water, essentially, then ultimately failed in the end anyway, Um and so the same thing is being repeated over and over again. And, and whatever that chart, whoever created that chart and was, is promoting this is, is not mindful, is not apparently paying attention to the failure rate of these projects. Um, <laughs> which I, well, I just Katie, found you're assuming, <laughs> no, you're assuming that they actually care about the failure well. rate and are actually <laughs> examining it. I mean, if you look at the so-called development projects that have been promoted by Western institutions like the World Bank, uh, if it were really genuinely a bank, it would have gone out of business, honestly. Yeah. So as we detail in this report, you know, you look at the case of Agrica, you know, which was... Yeah. 
so upheld by institutions like DFID and the North Fund that this was the best way to bring sustainable development. It goes defunct. It 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 goes uh, belly up, uh, defaulting on bank loans. And the land is taken away from the people anyways. Through right. its industrial uh, agriculture practices, the pollution of the farms, nearby farms, has already happened. Or you look at the case of uh, Sun Biofuels, again in Tanzania, the same thing. So you keep seeing these instances and these failures. And at the same time, there's no redress for the communities whose lands and water resources are taken away. So this blind faith, uh, which has been built that in order to develop, you have to make yourself attractive and lure these foreign investors in. The truth is, is nothing else but a top-down strategy of recolonizing African countries, of taking over their valuable resources. So they yeah. work for the Western elites and the elites in the country instead of creating policies that actually benefit the people, which actually feed the people, nourish the environment and Mother Earth and create real opportunities for Africans. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's a breathtaking. What's breathtaking to me is that it persists, that there is no body, there is no entity that is, you know, saying, time out, people, time out. We got to think this through here. Like, you know, we're, we're squandering resources, which quite honestly, we may very well need as Westerners you know, in the coming years. I mean, we we don't know. Maybe we're going to need to share water, th- create some sort of international water treaty. I don't know. But, uh, you know, to just blow this stuff away and walk away uh, seems... And, and and plus, on top of that, you have the whole threat of, of uh, political unrest, which w- will eventually become you know, acute when people can no longer, you know, feed them and water themselves. I mean, right? I mean, that's going to be happening. We're going to see that coming up anyway with the food shortages from uh, what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have people with a very uh, short-sighted approach. They're looking at the immediate profits and what they can benefit from. But I think the issues you're talking about, the overall well-being, political stability, Honestly, they don't care about that. They thrive in those chaos. And let's not forget when somebody gets poor, somebody gets rich. When somebody gets rich, somebody gets poor. Yeah, (laughs) that is very true. I mean, I'm just like, I just can't, as far as the U.S. is concerned, you know, with the amount of money that we're pouring into something like the World Bank and the fact that there is no accountability when these projects fail is also a conundrum to me. I mean, you know, why is it that uh, a company can get all this money from the World Bank, uh, you know, invest in these, uh, you know, crazy co- cockamamie projects that don't work and then just walk away with no no redress? I mean, they, we've just like funneled hundreds of millions of dollars into these things and nothing comes out at the other end. Nobody's gotten rich even. <laughs> well, uh, or maybe actually, they have, and they don't may, care. Maybe they, they have. So I think you know we have to understand that it is not just that they don't know. You have to understand the political agenda, where the belief in biggest, beautiful, large-scale industrial agriculture, the power that these uh, elites have in terms of campaign finance. So it is it is a maze of relationships. So let's not forget that oh, they're just naive, and uh, and and they made a mistake. But this is really about continuing to push a certain political agenda, which is about control of resources Mm. in other countries 
to perpetuate yes. the interests of the Western elite and the Western corporations. Uh, this has been the history of the World Bank, if you look at it over the last, uh, you know, throughout its entirety of uh, 70 or whatever years old it is. Uh, so none of that is, you know, surprising in some ways. Uh, what is surprising is how little we often know as taxpayers who are fueling the system. And that's why the accountability and the need for holding institutions like the World Bank accountable becomes very important. Yeah. And I don't. So so let's talk for a few minutes about solutions. Um, you know, do we start with, uh, you know, having some sort of I mean, this is pie in the sky, but, you know, some sort of uh, oversight board that starts looking into these development agencies and saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, you have a failure rate of 75 to 80 percent. X number of people have been displaced. Uh, this is causing economic, uh, you know, duress on populations halfway across the world you know is there is that the beginning like where do you start when it comes to uh overhauling uh this type of investment and this this type of quote-unquote development you know that's a great question katie because on one hand you institutions like the world bank or you know you do have or you know it's agency like ifc they have ombudsmen where the communities can go and complain it is a painful process to go through, mm -hmm. a very long process where you think of a community far away with no resources, having to find out about what are ways for them to complain. So it is not easy. Right. Um, at the same time, uh, I think there's such an urgent need to kind of hold institutions like the World Bank accountable. And here I would really call out the responsibility of each one of us as taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And whether it was because of this global outrage, which finally ended structural adjustment programs of the World Bank. Of course, the bank then went ahead and created uh, doing business reports, which ranked countries what they were like to do business with, mm -hmm. uh, really creating a race to the bottom that whoever would do everything to lure foreign investors in would get a good ranking. And again, internal reviews, pressure from outside led to the bank ending its doing business report. But we hear the bank is thinking of another strategy to promote uh, Western capitalism and its interests. So as we keep seeing that, I think it is very important for us to be monitoring. At the same time, you know, as you read the report, you'll see in all of the instances, the local communities are organizing. When there is no recourse, they are left to themselves to organize, to demand justice, even if their dissent is criminalized, even if their dissent is met with arrest and human rights abuses. So at the Oakland Institute, we not just only do research, but we are very proud of partnering with the communities in their struggle to mm. challenge and support them, whether they are complaining to RSPO around palm oil certification or whether they are uh, you know, connecting with the funders such as the World Bank or African Development Bank to showcase what the fallout of these so-called development projects have been. Uh, but unfortunately, there isn't just one agency. And God forbid, we all know if such an agency was created, trust me, it will be owned and controlled and managed by the same powers that are causing the <laughs> devastation even now. That's why you have a World Bank controlled by, you know, the way by the powers it is controlled today. By so American corporations or corporate interests. Exactly. Yeah, really astonishing. Well, Anurada, I guess we should say goodbye now. But before we do so, please uh, let, uh, you know, promote uh, the Oakland Institute shamelessly. Where can people <laughs> learn more? How do they sign up for that fantastic newsletter? Um, you know, how do they contribute? 
all of that good stuff? Well, all the listeners have to do is come to our website, which is oaklandinstitute.org, oaklandinstitute.org, which is one word, Oakland Institute. Uh, there you'll see the opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, The Reporter. At the same time, all of our rigorous, fantastic research and campaigns, everything is available there on the homepage itself. You'll find our new report, Drying Out African Lands. And follow us on social media, on Facebook, on our Twitter account or Instagram. And there are a lot of wonderful resources that we hope you will distribute and share with uh, your friends and family and colleagues. Yeah. I mean, we're all paying for this stuff. Every single one of us is contributing to these uh, predatory practices in the rest of the world that has less uh, less of an ability to defend themselves. So um, whether because their government is corrupt or they lack the educational resources, whatever it is. But, uh, but we are exporting a form of corporate, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It makes me so mad. I can't even like, really articulate it. <laughs> but it does, again, I, it was a great report. I really uh, appreciated re- what the work that you do on your auto. It's terrific. And I hope you'll come back again and do another show with me soon. Anytime you have something interesting you want to blow up, just contact me. Thank you, Katie. You know, so I appreciate it. I do it. this every week. So yeah, you bet. Uh, see you next week. Have a great week. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.